Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Well, today we're going to finish a section of Scripture that has a lot to do with the law Our hearts, legalism, do's and don'ts, that's a very relevant issue today, I would say, because so many people think Christianity is about a bunch of do's and don'ts. You can't do this, you can't do that, do this, do that. That's really not the case, according to Jesus. So sometimes it's a beautiful thing to take something that sounds complex at the surface, law, order, and you can boil it down into something simple. You know, there's that saying, have you heard before, how, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? So it's edible. You just got to take it slow. Take this big thing, make it simple, right? In fact, according to a third century rabbi who studied this, Moses in the law, the Torah, gave 365 legal prohibition, negative commands, and he gave 248 positive ones. Negative is don't do. Positive is due. Then David actually reduced all of that, seemingly, down to 11 in Psalm 15. And then Isaiah made them six. Isaiah 6, 8, bound them up, summarized them into three commands. Our Lord Jesus, in the great commandment of the New Testament, did it in two. Just love God, love people. That's the whole law, basically. And Habakkuk, the prophet... He reduced them in one statement, one great statement, the just shall live by faith. So statements and teaching can be really helpful if you don't get bogged down into the minutia, the little stuff all the time, which a certain group of people like to do in the time of Jesus. Remember in part one of the message, we began to look at a Sabbath scene, just another picture of this ever increasing increasing conflict going on between Jesus and the Pharisees over what is right to do on the Sabbath, what is not right to do, right? It was a day of rest, but they had all these regulations around it. So the confrontation is really over the question, is it better to obey a Pharisaical, rabbinical, man-made law of Judaism to not work, and that's what they called what the disciples were doing when they were just walking a grain field plucking a piece of wheat to eat. They call that working. Or is it better to do good helping people on the Sabbath? That's the big question. And that was a conflict at the end of chapter 2. And this really started all the way back into the Lord's first year of ministry, His first visit to Jerusalem. And it's been continuing out now through this region of Galilee around the lake. This is what's called the year of popularity because the crowds are getting intense for Jesus. He's picking up a lot of fans, not necessarily real followers, but he's got a lot of fans. This is making the Jews a little upset. As you might wonder, because all Jesus is doing, he's signs and wonders. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching. And this event may have very well taken place on on the Sabbath right after that fasting and food incident. Now, why are the Jews so upset with Christ? Because he's doing such good stuff, right? I'll, I'll suggest two reasons. Number one, he's doing ministry. He's helping, serving people on the Sabbath. 
which these Jews had made into a day of burdensome rules, regulations, and that included outlawing traveling and getting food, believe it or not. Second, the simple fact, the Jews didn't like Jesus. They didn't like His preaching. They didn't like His teaching. They didn't like His theology. So it wasn't so much what He was doing that it was healing signs and wonders even on the Sabbath. I mean, they didn't like that. But what was worse was what He was saying. What He was saying. What was He saying? Well, He's forgiving people's sins for starters. They didn't like that. And also, He's preaching a new covenant gospel of grace in that, right? Mercy, faith in His kingdom, rather than works, law-keeping, as a means of salvation. They had been teaching that for a while. And, and, so, and he's even clarified their misunderstanding of the Sabbath itself right to their face. This is confrontational. And his preaching is new to them. Okay? It's, it's grounded in Scripture, but their teaching was old. It had grown cold, legalistic, and he's upsetting their status quo. But the fundamental issue here at stake is over the word authority. Religious authority. Who had the right to rule over the Jews? The Pharisees or Jesus, the Messiah and Son of God? That's the battle line right there. So the confrontation about what might be called the Lord's Day, He's the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm breaking up into three dramatic scenes here. You're going to see a Sabbath set up, kind of a Sabbath seeking, and then the big Sabbath showdown. So we'll look at them one at a time, like this Sabbath setup, which is another word for a conspiracy going on here. You know, people are talking about conspiracies today, or they're conspiracies. Here's one right here. Here's a real live historic one. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. That's a setup, maybe, all right? He's got another opportunity for ministry and healing on the Sabbath. What a coincidence. And, of course, that was a no-no for the Judaizers, rabbis, scribes, Pharisees. And why they think it was a setup was that this man's condition might have been a plant, might have been a plot of the Jews for him to be there with a withered hand, which means it, it was deformed to the effect it was wasted, according to the Greek. It just wasn't good. It wasn't working. And the Jews knew Jesus to be compassionate, that he was a healer as well as a preacher. But God's providence, being what it is, it's evident here, whichever case it is. And then look at verse 2. And they watched Jesus, watched suspiciously, the Greek says, because they're looking for him to make a mistake. They watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might what? Accuse him. So there's the motive for the setup here. In fact, a few of the other good English translations render that phrase as they watched him closely like you're spying on somebody. And that's what they were doing. They want to be judge and jury here. They're trying to build a case to bring charges against Jesus to have him arrested and or killed. How do they do that? Well, according to rabbinical law, an outward physical healing on the Sabbath was work. Therefore, it was forbidden. In Judaism, if the problem you had health-wise was internal, you could take some kind of substance, which they didn't have much to begin with, okay, but you couldn't do anything on the outside, external. Like if you had a cut, well, it might be work to put on a bandage, right? For instance, a person with a toothache, they couldn't gargle their mouth with vinegar, but they could use an ordinary toothbrush if it was dipped in vinegar. 
That would be less work somehow. So you could do something clearly to save a life that was in imminent danger. You could prevent death. But this man had an outward, non-life-threatening condition. So that wasn't enough because he could have been dealt with the next day. So if Jesus healed that man then and there, they could accuse or charge him with being a Sabbath breaker working on the Sabbath. Like they tried to get the disciples for probably the week before, the Sabbath before when they were plucking the grains, a week. And you know what? Again, as a reminder, if they were successful in making that case, that was a capital offense. You worked on the Sabbath, according to their interpretation of Exodus 31, you could be punished by death. Here's a thought, by the way, for you. You might have Pharisees or sin sniffers in your own life. You ever get that sense that someone's spying on you? Someone's checking you out, see if you can ruin, if you're going to ruin your testimony as a witness for Christ. They're kind of looking to make you trip and fall. They can't wait to see you lie or cheat, steal, gossip, exhibit some bitterness, some kind of sin that they can post on social media, right? Tell others, oh, that person professes to be a Christian over there. Did you see what they did? That's kind of the idea here. And notice, by the way, there's no mention of the disciples in this passage. There's no reaction to the comments going on here in this event. So this confrontation is, this is mano a mano, one-on-one between the Pharisees and Jesus. So from the setup now, I want you to see this seeking, the Sabbath seeking going on, which is really like a call to truth. It's like a summons, verse 3. And he, Jesus, said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And when he said, come here, he's telling them, stand up and come before the entire assembly of the synagogue. He wants everybody to check this out. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. I love the Lord. I love the way he deals with people. I wish I could be like that. Just so in command of knowing precisely what to say and how to say it. He says, is it good to do right? to do something honorable on this day, or is it better to do something evil, something sinful? Would you rather have that? So the Lord is turning the tables on these men. In fact, Luke in his account, he inserts this, but Jesus knew their thoughts. So he knew their heart. He knew what question would best penetrate their hearts, bring conviction to their conscience. In fact, another translation, that second question reads, is this a day to save life or to destroy it? Now, For you and me, that sounds rhetorical, right? Like, well, who would want to do that? But for some of these self-righteous religious leaders, might not have been that obvious. The idea is Jesus here, our Lord is going beyond the mere letter of the law, minutia, okay? And he's going beyond the permission to save life on the Sabbath, and he's going to the true spirit of the law, which is doing good on the Sabbath. Any kind of good, like healing a man who doesn't even have a life-threatening illness at the moment. It's right to do that kind of thing on the Sabbath. That's what the Lord's saying. He mercifully wants to heal the man. And He uses this occasion to teach these people what it means to do good on the Sabbath. If you can help somebody, right, you help them on a Sabbath or any other day. He could have healed the man on any other day. 
He could have waited. He could have avoided this controversy. Could have broken up the conspiracy and the plot. Would have been all good. But the timing of Christ is impeccable. It's perfect. He purposely does it on Shabbat so that he can show these people what this day is really about. Well, so, yes, we have this day and we worship on it. We've come tonight to do that. We praise God, fellowship, rest. But it is also a day to do good to others when you have the opportunity. Which is another reason why you don't want to miss meeting with the church, which for us in our context is Sunday, because of the good that we can do for others in this faith family meeting the needs of this community, which unless you're here, you can't find out what the needs of the community are. Not really well. You need to be here to get a sense of that. Now, for most of us, we hear the Lord in this question here, the way He put it as only He could. What other reaction would somebody have? What other reaction would we have? Right? Same as them. They couldn't and they wouldn't answer. It says they were silent. The King James has a good rendering here. It says, but they held their peace. Hush. Hush your mouth. Especially since they already knew that the Torah, the law, didn't forbid rescuing someone. Even an animal on the Sabbath. Jesus, I mentioned this last time from Matthew, he points out doing good and the difference here. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Save life? Rescue it? That's what that Greek word means. That's just a reminder to them of what they should have already known. Pharisaical. Legalistic lawmaking is what led them to destroy the heart and compassion behind ministry that Jesus intended. Remember, these Jews are Sabbatarians. They have a long list of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations for Shabbat that is not found in the Bible. That is classic legalism. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about that. He said, quote, I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself the more sins I commit, end quote. That's good, isn't it? Well, the rest of this passage is where we get to the nitty-gritty of all this. The big idea, the confrontation. Here it is, the Sabbath showdown. Now we see what this is really all about, verses 5 and 6. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is fascinating because you have Jesus put on display two heavy-duty emotions together in dealing with these people. Anger. You can translate that as wrath, as in God's wrath. Jesus is really, really angry with them. But at the same time, he grieved over their hard hearts. He had sorrow for them. He healed this man, perfectly restored his hand back to its natural state. He did it without even touching him, mind you, so they couldn't pin the accusation of working on him because they didn't even touch the guy. It's a miracle that should have led to pure joy, and it doesn't really for either side 
Because our Lord was angry at the question he got. And then he was sad. So here on display, I want you to see this closely. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that you see this, where Jesus is angry. He's being 100% God, 100% man, 100% emotion, perfect emotion in perfect balance. And it's great that we have this in the Gospels, because now we see it on display, and it's a valuable lesson for us. It really is. When we deal with people, we have to look out for something. As Christian truth-tellers, we have the truth, don't we? And if we're not careful, we have a risk of banging people over the head with our Bibles. If we're not careful. Being angry. Being hard or harsh when we speak the truth, but truth without love, as Paul instructed us to do. Sometimes we have little or no mercy, no compassion. You know, sometimes we'll just say, well, that's the truth. That's the way it is. Too bad. There's no thought as to circumstances or suffering and burden bearing. And you know what reminded me of this this week? It was wonderful to be in our Bible reading plan for the church this week because we're reading Job. Perfect example. Job and his three friends, they started off perfectly right. How do you counsel someone in grieving? Someone's suffering, and you're not sure why, or you're not sure what the cause is? You don't run up to them and start giving them suggestions as to what happened or a way out. They sat there for a week and said nothing. Nothing. They just were a shoulder to cry on. They bared the burden. They were mercy, merciful, compassionate. And then it happened. They couldn't hold it in anymore. Job started to express some doubt, frustration over his suffering, which you and I would have done in the same circumstance, I'm sure. And his friends go off on him. And they had some truth about the character of God, by the way. If you read it, there's accurate statements about God in there and God's truth. The problem was they accused him of sin without proof as the cause of his suffering. And that wasn't the case. You know what they were doing? (laughs) They were sin-snipping. They were like the men and the disciples in John 9 with the blind man. Was he born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Had to be one or the other. And Jesus said, no, to manifest the glory and the mercy of God. Oh, didn't think of that one. We need that balance. Our Lord became angry, but never angry like we do for easy offenses against us or against certain people. You know, Jesus was never angry with sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes, was he? But he expressed most of his anger that he did in the Gospels towards self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees. I want you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, or make a note of it. I want you to see another occasion where the Lord got really angry, I think. It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke. It's a real tongue lashing. Matthew 23, middle of verse 3, pick it up there. Talking about the Jews, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Skip down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. What? Hypocrites. 
you see the exclamation point there, right? That means he's speaking loud. His tone is up. He's probably angry here. And woe is a curse. And he's going to lay seven of these woes on these religious leaders. Why? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, you're not even in the kingdom, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Skip down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Oh, you see the parallel? The chapter 3 of Mark? The weightier matters of the law. The spirit of the law. What's that? Like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's saying you tithed. You gave. That's fine. What about the heart? And then verse 28 there, that passage. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You get the idea of what Jesus hates? He hates hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. And do you think, do you get the idea he is more concerned with the heart than external, superficial conduct? I see that here. Because in the story here, the Pharisees would rather protect their traditions than see a man Healed. Remember what it said. These are men with hard or stubborn hearts. And the unredeemed by nature have these kind of hearts. Paul told us that in Ephesians 4.18. And that word, by the way, hardness of heart, that phrase, that can have a dual meaning. That can be translated in one passage according to the context as stubborn, being stiff-necked. You've heard that. Or according to another context, and both of them fit here, it's having a dulled perception. You just, you, it's like the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2. You can't discern or understand or perceive truth. So you got a hard heart either way. But if we have understanding, we need to offer it to people compassionately. I tried to do that this week. I'll tell you a little story. This week I was, uh, early last week I was uh, counseling, premarital counseling, a couple that had been referred to me. They're not a part of our church. I'd never met them before. I just talked to the lady on the phone. And she and her fiancé met me at Starbucks, and they wanted me to marry them. And so as I often do, I started talking to them about their testimony and their background and their witness. And she was a professing Christian, and I could tell right away he wasn't. Um, he liked to think that he was, but he was talking about in terms of his faith. Well, I grew up in a, somewhat of a Christian home, and that was basically it. But she wanted my blessing on that. And by the way, they were cohabitating as well at the time. And so I said, what? No can do. Now, I could have given them all kinds of Bible and just beaten them over the head. It would have been truthful to say that. But as I was telling them as gently as I could, trying to show a sense of mercy and compassion... I said, look, I know you love each other and you care about each other. I can tell. He's a real nice guy. Great guy. You folks, really, you know, you're good. But um, I can't do this. And I told her, if you're professing faith in Christ and you may be a believer, this is not something that you can do. You're out of the will of God. You're cohabitating and you want to become unequally yoked. That's a problem. And I asked her if she knew that and she had to have and she did express some awareness of that. And so that's the way I left it. But there were tears, and she cried. And 
That's not what she wanted to hear, but that's what she heard. But I tried to express it in a sense of love. And I said, hey, if there's anything I can do to help you, I gave them the gospel, both of them again, to make sure they heard it. And I said, hey, I'm a phone call away, a text, and let's meet, and that kind of thing. And that's how we have to think of this balance, the both and, the truth in love. You can't have just love, because that's the idea of the age. Love, 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 you can't offend anybody. The gospel by nature, by definition, is offensive. It's supposed to. If not, why confess, repent, and believe? Just go on the way you're going. So you have to tell the truth. But you can't be a dictator. You can't be annoying. And you can't beat people over the head either and not take into account somebody's context and circumstance. So there's a balance that has to be held in tension. The truth in love. Two hallmarks of love of Jesus that you see in his ministry. Compassion and honesty. Compassion and honesty, not one without the other. It's a both and, not an either or. For instance, just here you see his compassion. Chapter 6, flip a page in your Bible from Mark's Gospel there. Chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, this is the feeding of the 5,000, which really was 20,000. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had what? Compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Well, you see both there. I have compassion, and now i got to give them the truth. Now you flip over another page or so to chapter 8, verse 2. He said, and this is another feeding incident, by the way. It's different from the first one. There were two. And he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. So we've got to get these people something to eat. I've got to feed their bodies, and then I'm going to feed their souls. He grieved big time toward the end of his ministry. Remember those woes I just gave you in Matthew 23? Listen to this touching comment the Lord gives as he looks at what's ahead for the Jews, what's ahead for Jerusalem, because just a few decades after this time, the temple is going to be destroyed. And Jerusalem is going to be sacked. And the Lord says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood or her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. His heart goes out to them. I'm your Messiah. I'm the one promised to you. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I love you if only you would listen. If only you would follow the truth. His heart broke for them. That's sympathy. That's compassion. It's that kind of love and mercy that enables us to walk in somebody's life and like James 1 says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Anger for us is hard. And if you're male in this room and you got that testosterone going, it's even easier to get angry. It's a common sinful emotion for many of us because we don't think first before acting and we often lack compassion. Listen to the wisdom of Psalm 4.4. It says there, David wrote, Be angry and do not sin. Isn't that interesting? Be angry. There's a time and a place to be angry. Righteous indignation. Be angry and do not sin. How? Ponder or think hard in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. 
what would we say, how would we translate that, paraphrase that today? Sleep on it. You angry? Sleep on it. Don't rush. Don't react. Think before you speak. And then finally, back in our text, verse 6, in this Sabbath showdown again, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They consulted. Here's the planning of the plot in the conspiracy. This is, this is interesting. This is Jews and Jewish supporters, people, of King Herod to destroy or kill Christ. Talk about strange bedfellows here. You're talking about the hatred of the Pharisees had to be so strong for Jesus that they would conspire with another enemy. The Herodians, okay, were Jews that were supporting King Herod and the Roman Empire. Can you believe that? And, they, and they, they're in cahoots together to get rid of him. It's like the old ancient proverb, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And then Luke adds, the scribes and the Pharisees at this point were filled with rage as they began to talk to themselves in this plot here. This is out-and-out hatred of Jesus, isn't it? His authority. You know why? His perfect authority has come out. He's confronted. He's convicted these scribes and Pharisees. He's just overwhelmed their ego. So they have to get rid of him. And the problem is going to be, how are we going to get rid of him? The man is perfect. The man doesn't sin. He really doesn't say or do anything wrong according to the Bible, the Torah. But see, they were Judaizers with their own law. So they have another way. And we're going to see down the road how that plays out. So we've clearly seen here in this two-part message how the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath and it's the Lord's Day. And we've already talked a little bit about how it's our day in the sense we're called to do good on it, receive good. But I want to wrap up this message here by being really practical with some application because you might be thinking, how do we observe the Lord's Day today in 2021? This is a Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day commonly. Let me say this. Above all, the Lord's Day, or what you might consider a new Sabbath, it is a day of rest and worship, essentially. It doesn't have to be Sunday. It can be every day as the early church in Acts, you see, got together. It can be on the Jewish Sabbath, we've mentioned that. And if you have to work on a whole weekend, it can be another weekday. It can. But for most of us, it's going to come together as a local body, as a community of believers, and their guests on Sunday, the day that the Lord was resurrected, brought the new birth, were new creations. That theme is a part of all that. And I want you to see again this familiar text, what church life was like on the Sabbath, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If you read the footer of my e-blog that I send to you with the captive thoughts, it's there every week. I always cite Acts 2.42 to 47. What does it say in verse 42? This is the church has just been birthed at Pentecost. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In verse 44, I'll pick it up there. And all who believed, all who believed, 
were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, day by day, attending the temple, that would be the outer court of the temple in Jerusalem while it was there, attending the temple together, so that would be on the Sabbath. They were meeting early on the Sabbath. And breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God, there's worship, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day. And then you put that together with Hebrews 10, it says, as a command, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. And again in the Acts 2 passage, when we do assemble or congregate together, what are you seeing? We read the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word, and we preach and teach the Word. That's all. That's all worship. And we fellowship, which means we just love on one another, together, doing the one another's, serving one another. Right? Your church family. So you never want to habitually forsake or fellowship with your family in Christ. In the church is, of course, also where we disciple one another to become disciple makers. So we serve and build up or edify one another, which, by the way, is a big reason why you don't see the camera thing going on here tonight anymore. We decided to leave the Zoom and the Facebook simulcast behind because our leadership felt that it was time for us to come together in the flesh, in person, as a church, thankfully, as the pandemic seems to be fading away. Because what we were doing was necessary and was good, but was extraordinary and temporary. This is how God means for His people to be together. The psalmist said it this way, Psalm 96, 8 and 9. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come into His courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Pastor Bernie, you haven't told me, though, what I can and can't do on the Lord's Day. Right. And I'm not going to. Because if I did, that would make me the pharisaical legalist that Jesus is condemning. I'm not going to tell you, bind your conscience beyond Scripture, what you can or cannot do on the Sabbath, your Sabbath. However, I will give you five practical suggestions. How's that? You can take these or leave them as best as you want if you're taking note. Number one, I think this is good for your Lord's Day. Slow down. Slow down. We have enough fast food. We have enough speed. We got HOV, fast lanes, fast cars and planes, high-speed connections, right? Instagram, gratification. We live in a culture of now, and what we want, we want it now. God ain't about that. In fact, a lot of us would rather have it yesterday, so we need to slow down today. I think that's wise. Number two, duh, rest. That's what the word Sabbath literally means, taking a break, an intermission. If this economy and your situation allows for it, take some time on a day like today to just be still and know God, especially today. God told Israel, in fact, take a year off out of every seven as a sabbatical year, like vacations. I mean, servants had to be set free. Debt payments were suspended. It's a good thing. 
Take time off unless you're called to serve somebody on a day like today. Thirdly, devote the day. Devote the day. Focus a good amount of your chunk, a good chunk of your time to God today. And make it, again, Sunday with most of God's people, unless you have a compelling reason to do otherwise, because you have to provide for the family and work today, or some service, some mercy ministry you have to do. Otherwise, regularly come to the worship service. Pray the Spirit, too, while you're here, would fill you with the Spirit so you can sing and pray and give and hear the Word with everything you've got like you're supposed to. Don't be distracted. This is a place, George talks about this often as he begins the music for us. Pastor George will say, just leave that stuff at the door that you came in with. It's very valuable. Fourth, practice spiritual disciplines. Practice spiritual disciplines on your Sabbath. What do I mean? Well, today's a good day after you get out of here to review what you've heard with your family or even just yourself in meditation, what God has spoken to your heart in the Spirit. Maybe later, maybe tonight, maybe as you rest. Eat a little more Bible. You can never get enough of Bible. This may spur you to read something else. Speaking of reading, read good Christian literature if you can on a Sabbath. I can recommend to you a number of good Christian biographies or books on theology or Christian living, things like that. And have some prayer time later. And with family, even better if you can. Fifth and last, fellowship. Fellowship. Take additional time after our fellowship and see if a brother or sister would like to come with you to eat something or grab some coffee. Just do life together. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm telling you, the Lord's going to bless that big time for you and for Him. So those are just suggestions to take with you. As I close, I'll mention this. Early in his pastoral career, Jonathan Edwards, he was the man that brought the great awakening God used in America in the 18th century, maybe America's greatest theologian. He had to grapple as a pastor with what it meant for his congregation to be revived because they were really orthodox. They knew the truth. They were into the Word. They ate a lot of Bible, knew a lot of Bible. And they could rattle off like theology, the tenets of the Christian faith and all of that. But he noticed that a bunch of them didn't care very deeply about Christ. It was a head thing, not so much a heart thing. They were just absorbed with business and everyday life. And they didn't give that much attention to God, he thought. And there's a lot of churches today that are the same way, and I never want you today to be like that, right? To just like things as they are. Convenient, comfortable Christianity, backpack Christianity is what I would tell the students in our first priority club. It's like you put on the backpack, you put on Jesus when you need him, and then when you don't need him, you lay down the backpack and you go throughout your day. Because after all, that backpack can be heavy, right? Sometimes they, people don't want to be revived. They're just content to sit and sing just as I am to one another. Somebody once said, one person with passion is worth a hundred with an interest. Because the church exists by mission like a fire exists by burning. And when the fire stops burning, it goes out. It does. So we need to ignite, reignite the fire. Reignite the fire. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time in the Word and prayer. And spend time with God's people, the means of grace. Word, prayer, 
and the fellowship of the body. Because when we lose our sense of mission like that and the means of grace, the church dies off. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a word and a clear example. How to be angry, when to be compassionate and grieve, and that the Christian faith is relationship with you and then with others over religion, over the rules, regulations of religion. We're here about relationship. Help us, Lord, by the prompting of the Spirit to love each other, to want to be with each other, and to want to be here for all the reasons that we've been learning because you deserve You deserve and are worthy of our honor, praise, thanksgiving, and worship, personally and corporately. And if someone here struggles to do that, Lord, it may be perhaps because they have not been given the new heart, the new birth, the new life in which to do that. Despite being here and hearing the word for some period of time, they may not have come to the point in their life where they've really repented and come to Christ. Like that couple I just dealt with this past weekend. I think, I think one of them believed in Jesus. Believed in things about Jesus. But hadn't repented. Not knowing what it means to die to self. To turn from sin and self. And to trust in you. And trust in Jesus alone. Having forgiven their sins. So I pray that would be the case. For someone today or listening later. And you get a hold of us. To help you. Become a disciple and then grow in grace to be a disciple maker. Lord, thank you. Thank you again that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. This is the Lord's day and it's our day as well. Thank you for that blessing in Jesus' name. And we said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God glorifying, Christ exalting, and Bible centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's Christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the giving tab at the top of the homepage. 